Please take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 26. 1 Samuel chapter 26. This evening we're going to study the whole chapter, and that's one of the things with uh, large narratives like the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. They come in these large parts, and so the whole story is told, and if you break it into a variety of parts, you, you kind of miss things. And so um, that's why last week we studied uh, all of chapter 25, and this week we're going to take up 26, these large uh, blocks of Scripture. It's not always the wise thing to do, I think, when you're in the New Testament. Something like Romans, where Paul's giving us propositional theology. It's best to take like one to two, six verses, sometimes just two or three words. Uh, but here it's a different genre of scripture, and so we treat it differently as we study it together. In 1 Samuel chapter 25, we studied about this engagement with David and this wicked man, a foolish man named Nabal, uh, how David came and requested some food, just simple things, really not even anything in specific, just whatever he could spare, and how Nabal, in fact, insulted him. And it was uh, this insulting act of this wicked man that caused David to act in a way that's, well, not very Davidic, if I might say. Uh, he, in essence, forgot uh, what the Lord had done for him and uh, decided he was going to have some revenge. And so there went David marching. And you may recall the story where Abigail came out bringing some food, and she stopped David in his tracks. And do you recall what the praise was? He praised the Lord who kept his hands from blood guiltiness. And so David recognized the sovereign hand of God directing and even turning him back and keeping him as a righteous man so that he could lead his people uh, as blamelessly as he possibly could. And so now we come into 1 Samuel chapter 26 and we're back again in the the saga of David and Saul. And the last time we saw these two together was in uh, chapter 24, uh, where Saul came and was pursuing David and went into the cave uh, to relieve himself. And there's this famous and wonderful story how David snuck up behind him and took a knife and cut just a portion of the corner of his robe. And after letting Saul come back out without laying a finger on him, he confronted Saul and he said, Look, look what I have in my hand. I've spared your life this day. And you may recall the broken heart of Saul as he said to David, you are a more righteous man than I am. And how even Saul then commended David and said, truly, it is the case that David would be king. And so here in chapter 26, they meet again. And it seems as if Saul has forgotten uh, all of that engagement, that interaction between himself and between David and it's as if, as if Saul is the same angered, jealous, weak ruler. And so let's give our attention uh, to the reading of God's word in 1 Samuel chapter 26. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hakilah, which is on the east of Jeshimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped on the hill of Hakilah, which is beside the road on the east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness, 
And when he saw that Saul had come after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had come. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay. And Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army, and Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite and Joab's brother, Abishai, the son of Zeruai, who will go down with me into the camp to Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went into the camp by night. And there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. And Abner and the army lay around him. Then said Abishai to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. Then David went out to the other side and stood far off on top of the hill with a great space between them. And David called to the army and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered, Who are you who calls to the king? And David said to Abner, Are you not a man who is, who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over the, your lord the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king, your Lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die. But because you have not kept watch over your Lord, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is in the jar of water that was at his head. Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my Lord O king, and he said, Why does my Lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now therefore let the Lord, the king, hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day that I should... Have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, Go serve other gods. Now therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord, for the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. 
And David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things, and you will succeed in them. So David went his way. And Saul returned to his place. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we've studied this ancient history of your people, O Lord, of your action in the midst of Israel, we pray that you would give us understanding. O Lord, that these things would be pressed to our hearts, that we would see you as you are. O Lord, that we would have some understanding of the depth of grace that each of us have in our own salvation. Father in heaven, we plead with you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Very often, sin works in cycles in people's lives. And even in the lives of God's people, I do think we see very much the same thing. And the cycle sometimes sounds like this. Temptation, sin, cessation where the sin stops, temptation, sin, confession, cessation, and again, and again, and again. But there's a problem with that kind of cycle. What word have you not heard within that cycle that is necessary for sin to actually be stopped and put to death? Well, it's the word repentance. There's no repentance in the cycle. That's why the cycle continues again and again and again like a rolling wheel. It's not finished its full revolution before there it is, sin once again uh, rearing its head. It's almost as if a fire's been extinguished, but there's still somebody playing uh, with matches. And here we find Saul in much the same situation. He's tempted by the popularity of David. Then he sends at David again and again, whether it's throwing a spear at his head or pursuing him to kill him, but it's done again and again. And last time in chapter 24, we saw David come out. And what does he do? He rebukes Saul, but he does so by telling him that he spared his life. Yet, uh, that rebuke was received. Uh, Saul didn't take it past uh, confession. It was just quite simple. There was the temptation, the sin, uh, the confession. Oh, David, you're a much more righteous man than I am, uh, but no real repentance. And so here we come to the passage of Scripture again, and we have the story of a crazed Saul pursuing an innocent David, except this time his sin has grown. Because in chapter 24, (coughs) excuse me, in chapter 24, we saw that uh, Saul covenanted with David as he proclaimed the assurance of the reign of David as king. And so here Saul adds sin to his previous sin. And so I want us to study this together. The four points I want us to see in the passage of Scripture, the first of them is a broken covenant, verses 1 through 5. 
a broken covenant, 1 through 5. Then in verses 6 through 12, a Godward majority. A Godward majority. Then in verses 13 through 20, a well-aimed rebuke. A well-aimed rebuke. Then in verses 21 through 25, a relenting confession. A relenting confession. So as we come into verse 1, we immediately encounter the Ziphites. These are people who have already gone to Saul and reported on the whereabouts of David. And here they are again, but really their testimony is very small in verse 1. We read that the Ziphites came to Saul and Gibeah saying, Is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hakilah, which is on the east of Jeshimon? The Hakilah, a hill, sort of a wilderness, and uh, Jeshimon could also be then a desert. So there's this, uh, this picture of where these two different uh, landscapes meet one another and there uh, is David. But that's about all that they say, or at least that's all that's recorded in Scripture. And it's very likely that the Ziphites don't know anything about this covenant, this in- interaction that happened previously between uh, Saul and David. And so whenever they come, they're actually just responding uh, to Saul's rebuke that they hadn't and other people hadn't told him where this rebel David was. And so really, uh, they're acting in fear of their king. They're acting in response to his previous urging. But they don't tell Saul what to do. They simply say, isn't David over there? David and his uh, 600 men or 300 or however many it is at this point, uh, they've seen them moving. It's, it's an obvious thing. It's like Robin Hood and his, and his band of merry men. Uh, they're aware of where he is. And so I want to say that whenever you come to verse 1, there's really not uh, this sense that there's a temptation, uh, but rather just a bare fact being given over. And then in verse 2, it's what Saul does with it. It's not as if the Ziphites are saying, won't you go destroy him? Don't you think it's a wicked man that David is? Won't you have uh, your sword in your hands so that your crown is not challenged? There's none of that there. Instead, there's only verse 2 where we read that on the basic account of this uh, whereabout of David, that so Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And it's quick, almost reflexive. It's like a flash. And I think that's one of the things that the text is showing us is that Saul's heart that has, yes, confessed sin, yet not repented of sin, is very eager to dive back into sin. And I don't think this is very hard for most of us to understand because it's the rage and the angered heart of jealousy that's in Saul that presses him to go and to act and to respond so quickly and to go right back into what he pledged to David he wouldn't do again. How many of us know this? How many times do we in our lives sin, ask forgiveness, and find ourselves right back in it, especially when we've been angry and we've lost our temper and we've given ourselves over to a fit of rage, and that's something of where Saul is. It's quick. It's uh, it's something that's impressive, because what we saw in chapter twenty-four was 
a sincere heart from Saul. But we saw incomplete repentance, or even repentance not done at all. He'd been convicted. He made a confession. In fact, he even made a covenant. And really, what does this look like, this covenanting? Well, it's not very different than whenever you sin against a friend, a spouse, someone, and you ask for repentance, and then you give that little phrase at the end of it, I promise I won't do it again. That's covenanting. It's the same sort of thing that engaged between Saul and David, where Saul is commenting on the fact that it's true. It's a certainty that David will be king. And as he pleads with David in the end of chapter 24, begging David to then promise to him that he won't cut off his household. Uh, There's this relationship uh, there between the two men. But again, that cycle of sin, temptation, sin, confession, the cessation of sin where he stops. And that's all Saul had really done. He hadn't killed his sin. He'd only put the fire out. He hadn't dealt with the real issue, the issue in his heart, the, the heart of rage against David. He hadn't turned from sin and taken it over to the Lord. He just stopped. He didn't blunt the blades. Instead, he just kept going. And why do I point this out? And it's for this reason, that you and I need to keep regular watch over our souls. It's not sufficient for us to be a people who whether we like it or not, are going to sin. And when we hear the word of God or when we hear a rebuke from somebody and are called out for our sins and we feel pressed and we feel pierced through because of our sins, that we stop it. And we say, well, okay, well, I dealt with this situation. Maybe even I told him I won't do it again. I promise that you and I cannot be content with that. We have to constantly be pursuing our sin. And there's a number of ways that we do it that the Bible shows us. And whenever the Bible speaks of repentance, it uses the language of turning our backs on sin and turning unto the Lord. Because sin is never only between two persons. You know, here you have Saul. He confesses what he's done against David, but he hasn't done anything regarding the Lord. He hasn't mortified his sin. He hasn't asked for forgiveness. He hasn't sought restoration. And so he hasn't received the grace of a truly turned and restored heart. And you and I have to be concerned with that. We have to have our hearts not only constantly at war with sin, but we have to have our hearts turned toward the Lord, uh, the God of heaven. In verses 6 through 12, we see a Godward majority, and that's probably one that poor Marcel struggling to translate. Um, a Godward majority, or a majority that we have whenever God is with us. Let me say it that way. Because as we come to verse 6, we have David, who's already heard what's going on. Uh, He's not only heard, but he sent spies and uh, has some sense of of what the situation is, that yes, Saul is coming, and he's coming with an army of 3,000. And what we read is that David does something that's, well, a bit strange, at least for us. It's maybe not as strange for David He's quite used to standing against great odds. But in verse 6, David uh, says to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Joab's brother Abishai of Zeruiah, uh, he asks him this. He says, who will go down with me into the camp to Saul? And Abishai, 
One of the brave, great men of the Bible says, I will go down with you. And then we go ahead and read that they do. They, they take off together and it's at night and it's the time where they're sleeping and there's some wisdom in that. David and Abishai, they sneak into the camp. They go and they find where Saul is. And they go all the way to the head of Saul where he's sleeping. And on one side there's Abner, his guard, and the rest of the guard are all there around him. But they're all uh, sleeping and it's, it's a strange situation. And we have this engagement. Verse 8, you look there, Abishai urges David, not that David would kill Saul, but that David would allow Abishai, his great man, to then kill Saul for him. Uh, he says to him, look at verse 8. It's a very carefully chosen words that Abishai uses to David because he knows the man. He says, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. Makes good sense if he's close to David, if he's one of those men that David would go to, that he was also with him in chapter 24. Uh, he saw David in the cave. He saw David go and take the portion of the garment uh, with a knife, and he also saw David fall apart over even that act against the king, the anointed of the Lord, the man Saul. And so whenever he says to David again, he says, look, I'm reading Providence. <clears throat> I'm reading what the Lord is doing. And here, once again, David, it's plain as day. As he looks at God's providence, the Lord has given him into your hand. Doesn't it seem right? He's laying on the ground and he's asleep and everybody's asleep. And look, David, there's the spear. You don't even have to touch it. I know that it offends you, David. I know you're concerned with blood guiltiness. Let me serve you. I'll do it for you. And if it offends you that he would be horribly killed, I'll only strike him once. It'll be merciful. He'll die in an instant. That's what he's saying. That's how he's arguing the point of dealing with the enemy of David. But what does David do? Well, in verses 9 through 11, he refuses. He refuses this advance. And David has the sensitivity about him that it is so dangerous to interpret the providence of God in real time. Let me say that one more time for you because this ought to be something that's in your mind and on your hearts. It is dangerous to interpret the providence of God while it happens. It's healthy for us to look back on the providence of God later and to praise the Lord for it. We might not always have an understanding of why the Lord has done stuff, even in past tense. Sometimes we do. Sometimes it's clear. Not always. But almost always it's dangerous. You're going to make wrong assumptions and think the Lord is doing a different thing than he's actually doing when you interpret, like Abishai has done, the providence of God in real time but David's response does he say oh we don't do that kind of thing no that's not what he's about instead he establishes an ethic of fear he establishes an ethic of fear David says to Abishai verse 9 do not destroy him for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless verse 10 as the Lord lives 
the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord's going to deal with this. In verse 11, the Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed, but take now the spear that is at his head and the jug of water and let's go. Very simple. These three advances. The Lord is who you should fear. The Lord is who you should fear. You shouldn't be so gripped with fear for Saul that as he sleeps you think you've got to kill him. You need to be afraid of God in heaven who doesn't sleep. You need to be afraid of God in heaven that judges your soul. You need to be afraid of the right one. So let me back you up a little bit and The way I introduced verse 6 was that David did something strange. And why would it seem strange for one man plus Abishai, okay, so two men, to charge in against 3,000? Because we generally are afraid of two people versus an army of 3,000. It only makes sense. How could you succeed against such incredible odds? David is saying you ought not be afraid of all of this. You need to be afraid of the God who created all things and who upholds all things by the word of his power. That's the God you ought to be afraid of. And we can even see this in the text of Scripture in verse 12. It helps us give at least a more clear understanding of how the Bible understands this event. Because in describing this sleep, a sound sleep or a deep sleep, this nautical term of of real depth, like the depth of the ocean. Uh, A sound sleep uh, had come from the Lord and fallen on them. All of this is God's doing. That's how the Bible wants you to understand it. All of this is what the Lord is having his hand upon. Two men and their God versus 3,000. Now, those are odds that I can work with. I want to share with you a quote, one that I did find gets misquoted. But I'm going to quote from the earliest source, John Knox. A man with God is always in the majority. You understand what he's saying? I'm going to rephrase it slightly. One man with God is always in the majority. Whenever God is for you, who can be against you? It's the same thing. The powerful hand of the sovereign God. David doesn't need to fear Saul. He doesn't need to fear the 3,000. He can go down the hill with just a shy and simply know that he can fearlessly walk among that multitude. Why? It's because he knows his God. It's because he knows his God. And friends, I just simply want to tell you that very often we sin out of fear. We sin out of fear of uh, the unknown, things of the future. We, we do things that are unethical, things that the Word of God doesn't commit to us that we may do because we're afraid of what's going to come. That's one reason why some people steal. They're putting away for the future. They're worried about famine. And so they would prefer to have fortune now just in case the famine comes later. Maybe they reach out their hand and they do something against another person out of a fear of them. They're afraid of what's going to happen. That's exactly the circumstance here. The heart 
of Abishai is wanting to be put out against Saul. He's afraid of Saul and he's afraid of the army of 3,000. But the thing that I want to say to all of us is that we ought to be afraid of our God and we ought to let all of our actions flow from what we know of Him. That He's holy and that He commands His people to be holy as He is holy. To be a people who would live after Him in the things we say and the things we do even in the way we plan out the days to come if we can plan any of those things at all. And so what I want to say before we move on is this. It wasn't that David was fearless. Rather, his fear was placed in God and not in men. So we go on to verses 13 through 20. We see a well-aimed rebuke. So you come to verse 13. We read that David took some distance uh, between a sleeping Saul and this army. I mean, he's not insane because what he's about to do is he stands on the other side, far off on the top of a hill with a great space between them, is he's going to wake everybody up. And in verse 14, he called to the army and to Abner, the son of Ner, and he says, Will you not answer Abner? And so we're beginning to get into the first portion of his rebuke. And he doesn't start with Saul, because after all, Saul is the leader of the armies and of the people of Israel. Rather, he starts with his servant. He starts with his servant, Abner. Abner answers, who are you who calls to the king? He has some sense about him. David answers to Abner, are you not a man? Who is like you in Israel? Now, it might sound like a strange question. Are you not a man? But he's talking about the greatness of Abner. Are you not choice? Are you not a great warrior? Are you not a man of stature and strength? Are you not the first man in the army of the people of Israel? Who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your Lord the King? For one of the people came in to destroy the King your Lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die because you have not kept watch over your Lord, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jar of water that was at his head. So it's a simple rebuke and it's a kind rebuke. He doesn't rebuke the older man harshly. He doesn't rebuke the man of authority directly. He does it in an indirect way, although it's a proper way to rebuke Abner. But it's right there at the very close of what he has to say to Abner where it becomes a personal thing specifically with Saul. You see the last thing he says in verse 16. And now see where the king's spear is and the jar of water that was at his head. Look how close we got. We were looking you in the face. We were close enough to touch you. We could have took your life had we even desired to do it. Now what's David doing here? <clears throat> He's trying to show to Saul this reality. I don't want to kill you. I won't do you harm ever. Doesn't matter if you're in a cave. It doesn't matter if you're sleeping. I won't do anything to you whether your entire army is ready to charge into the cave and destroy us, 
or whether you're all laying there having dreams at night, no harm will come from my hand to you. And he's saying this to start out, to go to Saul and to say to him, my heart of goodwill is to you. I'm not against you. And he goes on, and as his rebuke, then turns specifically to Saul. Had and put your feet down. Turns to Saul. It's in verse 17 in response to Saul speaking. Saul asks, he says, is this your voice, my son David? And David says, it is my voice, my lord, O king. And then he responds also to Saul, why does my lord pursue after his servant? And you can hear it. I'm your servant. Why would you want to come after me? All I am is a faithful person to you. I'm not against you. I'm not your enemy. I'm not a rebel. I'm not your challenger. I don't want to kill you. If I'm your successor, it's of the Lord's doing, but it's not because I'm doing anything against you. It's a word of gentleness to Saul. And in the rebuke, he's saying to Saul, look what you're doing. Look what you're doing. Look at your own acts. As if he's holding it up like a mirror right in front of his face. He goes on, he says, For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Verse 18. Then in 19, Now therefore let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If it is the lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the lord, for they have driven me out this day, that I should have no share in the heritage of the lord, saying, Go serve other gods. Now therefore let not my blood fall to the earth, away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. And so you study the rebuke of David. And it's gentle. It begins with Abner. It says simply, I could, but I won't cause you harm. Look at what you're doing. Why are you doing this? Please stop doing this. Please turn. Please repent. Please change your trajectory. You see, that's what David's goal is. It's not to come in anger and say, Are you crazy? How could you do this? I'm a good man. Saul, you're foolish, you're wicked, you're evil. Only a wicked and an evil man would do this kind of thing. He doesn't say any of that. And it's because the goal is to see Saul turn. He wants his heart to turn. He wants his heart to change. And this is what grace is. It's a word that intends to turn a man or a woman's heart from sin and unto the Lord, where the Lord forgives and the Lord pours out mercy. And He does it all from the satisfaction of the cross of Jesus Christ. All from the cross of Jesus Christ. It's not a harsh rebuke. It's the rebuke of a righteous man. Psalm 141, verse 5. Let a righteous man strike me. That is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. That is oil on my head. And so again... This is David's well-aimed rebuke. It's not intended to hurt Saul. 
or to relieve the pain that David feels. It is intended to turn him to repentance, to make him seek forgiveness from God in heaven. A well-aimed rebuke. One thing I want to say before I go on is this ought to always be at the very heart of any rebuke that comes from any officer or Christian within the church. If you ever see these things in church discipline, if you ever see these things as you engage within the church, one with another person, this ought to always be the heart. Always. For the glory of Christ. For the reclaiming of the brother or sister. So that the sin is put to death and the person truly repents. Now you know the rest of the story. You know how hard Saul's heart is. You know that there's uh, not ultimate or complete success. But in verses 21 through 25, you see a portion of the effect of the rebuke. And you see a relenting confession. A relenting confession or a confession that stops the sin in its tracks. Makes him relent like his hand is dropped and the sword has fallen to the ground. And so in verse 21, you have the response of Saul. And the first thing he says, and this is where you know that the rebuke has worked, and that David's heart, at least, has had some good effect. Saul responds, verse 21, I have sinned, period. He addresses exactly the issue. He doesn't say there's something between me and you. He doesn't say, uh, oh, David, yes, I, I've done a wrong. Or, oh, David, there's been some great misunderstanding. No, he calls it for what it is. It's sin. And sin has a Godward direction. Sin is a thing between not only two persons, but those persons and their God. It's an offense that has in every way an effect before the face of God as all sin insults God and his rebellion against him. Saul says, I have sinned. And that's where you want every confession to begin. I have sinned. And then Saul goes on and he requests to David, Return my son David. For I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. Well, that's clear. And one of the things that I want to say is that I think it's sincere. I think it's sincere just like what we read in verse or chapter 24. I think his heart is in it just as much. I think he really means, David, I'm sorry. David, I sinned. David, why don't you come to me? As if he's a father that wants to embrace his son-in-law once again. Kiss the captain of the army of Israel on the forehead and love him again. I think he intends this rightly because I think the rebuke has landed. It has had a good effect. But how does David answer it? Because this is an important thing. It's something to really see. We go on in verse 22, the response of Saul's request that David comes and return to him with the promise, I'm not going to do it again. David answers him from the other side of the valley with some distance. He says, here's the spear, O king. Let one of those young men come over here and take it. You stay where you are. You let one of those young men come and take it. You see, David is sober about the reality because he's already rebuked him once and he's rebuked him a second time. And he's done it with a heart that desires to see repentance but what have you not heard in even the confession of Saul? Yes, he said he sinned, 
but he hasn't turned to the Lord for forgiveness. He hasn't humbled himself and become broken before the face of the Lord. And so you have an unrepentant sinner who's touched in heart. His confession has stopped him in his sin, but it hasn't killed his sin. And the sin has to die. So David says, you stay over there. You come get this spear. But you stay over there ultimately. He goes on and he says this in verse 23. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today. And I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Do you see where David's heart is in contrast to Saul? Saul says, I've sinned. David says, the Lord is in this. That's if he's saying, that's where you need to go. That's where you need to go. The righteous man needs to be on his knees, and he needs to be on his knees, not before David, but before the God of heaven. Go to him. He goes on in verse 24. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord. Not master. Not the Lord Saul, but of the Lord of heaven, the God, Yahweh of Israel. And may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Saul, I don't need to hear from you that you're going to stop it. I need you to run to the Lord. You have dealings with him that you need to then go and do business. And Saul says to David in response, a benediction. Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. And so David went his way and Saul returned to his place. The confession stopped the aggression, at least for a moment. But if I can direct you just a couple verses ahead, what we're going to see as we study chapter 27, David in his heart is afraid and still has some concern. He says, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. You see, David's only a man. He doesn't have the foresight of divinity. And he's still concerned. Even though you've got a confessing Saul, a sincere Saul, you don't have a repentant Saul. And he says, there is nothing better. This is chapter 27, verse 1. There is nothing better for me than I should escape to the land of the Philistines. I need to just go. I'd be safer to hide amongst the pagans than to be in danger in the midst of the camp of Israel. And so again, what's this passage about? It's about the need for true and full repentance. Repentance that we pursue. That we're concerned not to only feel sorrowful over our sin, not to even call our sin sin, but to then do business with God in repentance. To see our sin be pursued and put to death, the rage of our hearts, the anger that we've committed, to then be brought to the Lord so that the Lord would do away with it and so that we could truly turn our backs upon it. And be restored. That's what we're called to be. And a people that we're called uh, to strive after being. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Lord, for the ancient lessons that we can learn for today. Father, we pray that you would help us. Help us to be a people who would hate our sin and to love you, O Lord. Help us to be a people who would delight to know that you forgive sinners and that you restore us. O Lord, help us to have an assurance that all of that forgiveness can only be had because of the work of Christ and his death on the cross. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.